Hi, and welcome to Blissful Spinster. This week's guest is cinematographer Oren Soffer. Just a couple of fun notes before we get going. This episode was recorded nearly a year ago, last October, and you'll hear Oren and I refer to the film The Creator as its former name, True Love. Also, this episode will be a part one, as Oren has graciously agreed to come back as a guest to record a bonus episode and talk about what he's been up to since our last chat and to talk a little bit more in depth on The Creator on the eve of the film's release. Oren lives in Los Los Angeles and is an up-and-coming cinematographer with a bold cinematic eye. Oren's work includes two feature films, Fixation, that premiered at TIFF, and All's Well, that premiered at Tribeca, both in 2022, as well as co-DPing the film The Creator with cinematographer Greg Frazier. While studying film at NYU's Tisch School of the Arts, Oren was nominated for the ASC Gordon Willis Student Heritage Award, and he was also a finalist for the Ari Velker Binnerman Award for Cinematography. Oren has also shot multiple award-winning short films, including Opera of Cruelty, which won the Student Academy Award, and See You Soon, which won the Audience Award at the Palm Springs International Short Fest. And let me tell you, See You Soon is a really, really good short film, and you can find it on Oren's website if you'd like to take a look. Recently, Oren has started co-hosting his own podcast called Cinematography Salon, which has some great in-depth conversations on both the technical aspects of filmmaking as well as what it takes to navigate the world of film as a career. Oren and I met at a UTA party last September, and we had such a great conversation that I asked him if he'd be on Blissful Spinster, and I was delighted when he said yes. I have to admit that my conversation with Oren is one of my favorites to date. His passion for the art of filmmaking is palpable, and he's all at once introspective, humorous, and articulate. He loves to share knowledge, and he is full of wonderful nuggets for filmmakers of any level. Beyond the absolute joy of watching Oren succeed at what he loves, what brings me the most joy is knowing that I can now call him a friend. We had such an amazing chat, and I am so excited to bring you part one of my conversation with Oren. So however you found this podcast, thank you for tuning in, and please enjoy this week's episode. Hi, Oren. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Hey, how's it going? So good. Having a beautiful, lovely afternoon in Glendale, California. Ooh. The sun is shining. The birds are chirping. The light is skipping off the floor in a beautiful way. And things are great. So a DP's dream. <laughs> As always, when I was looking for apartments, I was like, listen, we need a big window. I need some natural light situation in here because if not, what am I supposed to look at wistfully? in the afternoon hours and ponder <laughs> the beauty of natural light. So I have a great floor to ceiling window and it ticks the box. So as listeners can hear, there's the tail end of an announcement here. I'm stuck in an airport, <laughs> but I'm still doing my podcast because I love yes. doing my podcast. I love the dedication. And I was oh, it's so good. But I was also super excited to speak to you. Thank you for doing this, Orn. I was absolutely stoked. We had such a great chat when we met. And I was like, oh, podcast. Absolutely. Let's continue chatting. I would love literally nothing more. So I'm so excited. You're a DP and I met you at a UTA party, which was super exciting for me. I hadn't been to one of those in a long time. Um, I hadn't been to one of those ever. So good for good Did for you us. just get signed? Yeah, I signed with UTA er- earlier this year. Oh, amazing. I did look you up. Mm. We both have an international upbringing. I thought yeah. that cool. Yes. I, uh, yeah. The international runs strong. Yeah. So how did your journey begin to be being a filmmaker? It, I always describe it as a two-pronged path that ended up converging at a certain point. And the first prong was just a love of movies as a kid, as most kids who grew up in like suburban America 
do, became very quickly obsessed with Star Wars and Indiana Jones and Back to the Future and Jurassic Park, which was very formative. I loved, I was a dinosaur kid, so I loved dinosaurs. Jurassic Park came out, I was five years old. That was like the greatest thing that's ever happened to me is this movie coming out and I can go see it in theaters. And I remember seeing it in theaters and I was completely unfazed by the like scary stuff in it. I just love the dinosaurs. I don't care. I love that they ate people. I thought that was cool. I had no issue with the terror aspect of it. I just thought it was great. And so that was pretty strong. In addition to that, I was also really into art and drawing and painting. I was like a vociferous drawer as a kid, like three years old, drawing, drawing, and mostly dinosaurs, obviously, but also spaceships and stuff like that. Little boy stuff. It's cliche, but it is what it is. And then as time went on, those interests converged. And I, my family and I moved to Israel when I was 10 years old. And because my parents are from there, so it wasn't just random. And <laughs> they didn't just put you on a plane. Yeah, because so. that would have been weird. They're just like, yeah, we're just going to Israel. Why? I don't that, know. That was always my answer when people said, why'd you grow up in Mexico? And I was like, well, I'm the youngest of six. And they had too many kids at home, so they just yeah, dropped me off. Right. Exactly. Yeah, like I <laughs> I moved to Israel when I was 10. My family didn't. They just sent me over there. I don't know. Yeah. No, they, they, they were from there. My grandparents lived there, and now we have a bunch of family there, cousins and that kind of thing. So we moved when I was 10. And these interests continued. I went to arts middle school and focused on on what they called plastic arts. So it's like painting, drawing, sketching, charcoal, like all sorts of different materials, and then also sculpting and 3D art and also digital art. So it's kind of everything. But at the same time, I started developing an interest in filmmaking as a visual art form and a natural extension of that interest combined with my my like cinephilia. And, and then in high school, we had a, a filmmaking class that you could take. So extra credit. Of course, I immediately jumped on it and we made music videos and short films all on mini DV. This was like really lo-fi compared to nowadays, but like early, early digital tape, standard def, always frustrated at the time. Like, why doesn't this look like the movies that I like? Like, what's the disconnect? I don't get it. I don't understand. <laughs> why does this absolutely garbage camcorder with a fixed built-in servo zoom not look like cinema. I just couldn't understand and eventually figured it out. But that was my first exposure to like cinematography as a craft. So during those three years of that class, we covered, among other things, shot size, wide, medium, close-up, focal lengths, composition, all the basics. And I, I got into some books at the time too. There's like the five C's of cinematography. It was very formative. There was this book called something directing. It's like a blue book with hands. Mm-hmm. Everybody who, it, yeah. yeah. These are all like very foundational filmmaking books. And that was it. I think by that point I knew that this is what I wanted to do. And this is what I was interested in. And then after a brief pause of pursuit of this interest to serve in the Israeli military for three years, which is mandatory for Israeli citizens and residents. I applied to NYU, sight unseen, never been there, didn't visit. Um, I was in the army, but applied anyway, got in, went, and that was really the beginning of the professional part of the journey, shooting student films, graduating with a little reel of student projects. And then that was in 2014. Wow. And now we're here. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. and now you're in LA, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. I moved here four years ago, but I gave New York a good try, I think, for eight years total, for college, for post-graduation. And uh, New York's a tough place to live. Not a huge fan, I have to say, of living there. It's an amazing city to visit. 
and spend time in and frolic around in and enjoy its many bounties. But living there is just, it was just a grind and I couldn't do it anymore. And LA is chill and it's just more my vibe. <laughs> Definitely more my vibe. Yeah, I always felt there's a really cool energy in New York in short bursts, I find, yes. for myself. And I also, be, I don't know if you've been to Mexico City, but it's a little more mm-hmm. spread out in the, it's the same kind of spread out vibe that LA is to a certain extent. The streets are bigger, The right. you don't have canyons of buildings and concrete, unless you're in downtown, but you can always go somewhere else. Exactly. You just In New York, it's everywhere, oh, it's, right? It's everywhere. You can't escape it. I mean, that like- yeah, and- <gasps> oppressive nature is it's just everywhere yeah so it made me feel very claustrophobic especially when i was younger i did spend i think four months there on a show mm-hmm. and ended up running the marathon because i'd been training for it right but nice. that was in 2014 when you oh, graduated well, i was so. <laughs> just down the road from the marathon path i'm sure yeah. it runs right through manhattan um, so yeah yeah he's also the weather in la is identical to the weather in israel it is a temperate desert adjacent Mediterranean climate. It's literally identical climate conditions. So this is a lot more my speed. And then the other thing is, yeah, like you said, New York has this really cool energy, but I am uh, proudly uncool. And so that was just not my scene. (laughs) It's just not, that wasn't it for me. (laughs) Totally understand. There's one of those uh, announcements going through. I love the announcements. I can't hear a word. They literally (laughs) sound like, it's like the parents in peanuts. That's all I hear. Well, to me, I'm like, it's going to sound like, like Airplane, which is one of my favorite comedies Oh, fantastic. Ever. Yeah, the announcements in the oh. beginning. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's great. The white zone is for loading and unloading. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I can vividly picture it. I recently, I watched it during the pandemic because it is like a comfort film for me. And every time I watch it, I find something new. And I've been watching it since probably the late 70s. So that's saying a lot. Wow. <laughs> and I just noticed that in the control room scenes, like the air traffic control room scenes, they had washing machines in there. They're, like the counters were washing machines that were running and it cracked me. I was like, oh my God, there's all these little visual things. I have, it's, I have it's definitely it's never noticed that. That's <laughs> brilliant filmmaking. <laughs> uh, and actually one of your, cause you had, um, we'll get back to it, but I know the Coen brothers are some people that you are some influences of yours and they're, they're certainly of mine. And every time I watch like the big Lebowski, there's something new for me to, oh, absolutely. To go, oh, I I didn't I'd never seen that before. I never got that line quite this way before. But. Yeah, well, that's a movie that I I've seen that movie since I was ten. I think was the first time I saw it. And so definitely, as you as you get older, yeah. you get more of the jokes. They're also like five jokes per ten seconds, so it's easy to miss some of them. Mm-hmm. But also, just as some of them are quite sophisticated, and so the ten year old brain doesn't comprehend the brilliance, and then you start to learn about film history. And then you start to realize, oh, not only is this movie a bunch of quotable one-liners, it's actually like a really clever like parody slash subversion of the film noir genre. And then it gained another layer of meaning once I moved to LA because it's a very LA movie. Yeah. And once you start recognizing the different areas and landmarks and, and stuff in it, it gains an even another layer of appreciation for it. So yeah. Love that movie. So getting back on track, as we could talk about. I love going off the tracks, but yeah, so we'll get back on the track. No, it's okay. But what, so I did watch a few of your shorts and one of them you directed. So I'm wondering, Uh was that what your initial track was? Or is cinematography, because like the friend you met, our our mutual friend now, David Bolin, he started out wanting to direct and then realized he just, he really fell in love with cinematography. 
and that's where his heart is now. Yeah. So what happened is when, when you get to film school, the first thing they ask everybody in the first symposium with the whole class is, who wants to be a director? And everybody raises their hand because it just feels weird not to, because it, otherwise it's like, why are you here? This isn't technical school. It's not AFI. It's not like there's no cinematography track or whatever. It's people come here to learn filmmaking in general and directing. So I think when I went, I still had some residual interest in directing in theory, but I was I also already knew that I loved cinematography and I was going to do cinematography. And that interest in directing quickly waned, but I did direct a thesis film. It's just a thing you do. It, it's just everybody, the program is so built around production and directing and production courses that it felt, it's not that I felt obligated, but it just felt like it would be a good thing to do, to do that and to experience it and to have it and then to set it aside after I graduated. And uh, and so that's what I did. And I directed my thesis film junior year specifically so that senior year I could focus on cinematography and shooting other people's thesis films. So I got mine out of the way early in order to focus on what I really wanted to do. Well, no, that's cool. Yeah. But it was fun. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I haven't directed since. It's been nearly 10 years, which is insane. But but it was, yeah, it was a good experience. I don't think right now I certainly have no interest in it. I don't know what the future will hold. But yeah, directing is tough. It's a tough gig. It's a really tough gig. And <laughs> I, don't, I have tough. little envy of those who pursue it and nothing but admiration, honestly, because yeah, it's wild. <laughs> it's just wild. It's a, It can be a wild ride. Yeah. And you have to have so much belief in yourself and the project you're trying to pursue. That's you know? the thing. That's the wild thing is the craft of directing is a whole other beast, fascinating thing and elusive. And I think one that even a lot of working directors don't always have fully down. But the pursuit of directing as a career is really what's crazy because unless you manage to sidestep into it, which for instance, many DPs who have later become directors did, they became quite established as DPs and then were able to sidestep into directing quite easily, mostly in television. So the common pathway is like you shoot a season of TV and then in season two, They'll give you an episode to direct. Mm -hmm. That happens all the time. But directing TV is obviously quite different than directing a film, certainly than directing an indie film that you need to be the main engine of its moving through stages of production and enthusiasm and getting other people enthused about it. And that's the part that I like can't, I can't do it. I can't do that at all. That's beyond <laughs> my capabilities. And that's where the admiration comes from, mostly just the gumption. I love it. Well, it's great. I think I also I think it's always great when people choose to step into the shoes of what everyone else is up to. So they understand like you understand a director from a different point of view, not just from the outside. Mm. Yeah. And way back when I thought, because I was, I like you, Spielberg was my entry point, but it was Close Encounters because I'm a little older than you. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Because yeah. I saw it in the theater, not in a oh, VHS. Um, I was not even an I, I You were not born. Yes, I was not even a concept <laughs> in 1977. No. I wasn't even under consideration, no. much less. Uh, I saw it in 78 because I saw it in Mexico. And I don't know if it was like that in Israel, but we would get the movies like a year later. Oh, yeah. D big delay. And, yeah, this yeah. was a huge issue for me. Yeah, it was, it was to me too. But um, yeah. but I fell in love. I was like, somebody made that for me. Oh, yeah. That wasn't, it wasn't like I'm relating to the boy. It was like, somebody put that story together. Yeah. And I want to do that. And I didn't necessarily know what director was at eight, but I started writing 
mm. started writing short stories. I started reading plays because that's what I could get a hold of because I could I didn't know it was in Mexico like where I was going to find a, a Samuel French to get me a screenplay right. But I've also on my journey done. I've done lighting, I've done scene design, I've done technical direction in theater, I've done, you know, like, mm. like my, I did all of that thinking if I write my script, I'm going to wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> the courtesy phone, please. But I just figured it would teach me how to write my screenplays in a way that it spoke to every discipline. Because a screenplay is, as you've probably heard people call it a blueprint, I like to call it a conversation. Oh, I love that. Me as the screenwriter, I'm having a conversation with you as a DP when you're reading my script. Absolutely, yeah. And if, I, if I've communicated it right, even if I'm not the director, at least a portion of my vision this might end up on that screen. Advisory. No, 100%. Because you've interpreted it that way. No, for sure. And I mean, honestly, for me as a DP, it's like the, the, the best scripts are the ones I end up meeting with the director afterward, making the assumption that they have written the script, right? So in a situation where the director has written the script, if I meet with them and then I present my initial uh, instinct of ideas that came from reading the script, the best scripts are the ones where when I do that, the directors go, oh yeah, that's exactly what I was going for. And it's not just some random mind melt situation. It's just the script clearly communicates or at least inspires those images. And it, it, yeah, it's like in conversation with myself, with other films, with other stories. And it all comes through in such a clear way that I'm just pulling stuff out of the conversation yeah. that it is eliciting. So I really love that. And those are, and the, the ones where that doesn't happen, the ones where you read the script and uh, nothing's really coming up. I'm not getting anything from this. It's just words kind of tend to be the less good shooting experience because <laughs> you're not pulling from anything. You're just floating around in the ether and it's, it feels unmoored. And that's not a good feeling for a DP. I feel like cinematography is a constant conversation. It's in conversation with the story and with the intention. And if those are clear, then it's a good conversation. It flows and it's easy and it's creative and it inspires all these other things. And when it's not, then you get, I don't know, stuck and hit a wall and can't think of anything interesting to do or how to shoot a scene. It just ends up being blah, like coverage. And that's no, that's never fun. Anyway. <laughs> well, yeah. And then it, I think then the, as the conversation ends up in post, the editor, if the conversation has blossomed on set, it continues that conversation and for the editor, right? Yeah. And if it's uninspired, it's not you're certainly not gonna inspire the editor. No. <laughs> right? They're not gonna and, have much uh, to work with. Much. <laughs> Sorry. And, but that conversation to me continues all the way into the audience. I'm yeah. not in charge of what the audience gets. I know what I intended, but I would never want to go, Oh, you got it wrong. Whatever that audience gets from my story is what they got. So the best, if those conversations are flowing from the beginning, I think that's when all of a sudden the audience has a really good reaction, whether it's good, whether they're challenged or they're inspired by whatever that we produce. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. I think that's such a beautiful way. I've never, I've never heard that, heard it described in that term before. And I love that. So I may steal this. You, you can steal and it. I will. Just uh, thank you. Maybe borrow it and use my name too. No, yes. No, <laughs> the credit will be given. I refuse to be one of those people who steals memes and then reposts them without the original, <laughs> the original memester or artist or whatever. Yeah. I have a huge issue with that. So yes, <laughs> every time I will say, oh, yeah, filmmaking is a conversation. It'll be copyright. 
this. <laughs> but I mean, that that's come to me after, you know, I mean, I've been at this for a while. I'm still trying to get my first film off, but yeah. I know it's going to be good. Yeah. Because I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been able to write the script I wrote mm. when I came here at 26. Mm-hmm. It just wouldn't have come out of me, you know? And that's one thing I, I do wonder fresh young, you know, writers coming out of film school and they tend to want to sit in their apartments and write. And that's great, but you need to live a little too. Yeah, you do. That's tough. Honestly, I think that writing and pursuing a career in writing, which I have a few friends who are doing, is somehow even harder than pursuing a career in directing. And I think the only thing that supersedes pursuing a career in writing in the industry is acting because bless those poor souls, like what they go through, I cannot fathom mm-hmm. the rejection and being judged on your looks and the it factor, which is so indescribable, but is a thing. It's a thing that an actor just has a certain like charisma and presence that you can't, I don't even know, like, I don't think anybody knows what it is, but it just is a thing. So that's so hard, but writing is so hard because of, the, I think because of this specifically, because you need, you need to have experienced the world and experienced life in order to have something to write about. And, and that's hard to do. That just takes time. And in the meantime, you have to do something. Yeah. I don't know, but you tough. also think, yeah. you're, but you also think I have to be in LA and I have to be keep writing and all of a sudden you, you don't live. Oh, for sure. Or you don't, or, you know, and that's, yeah, you have to feel like you're pursuing it. it. Yeah. 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 And that's, and I get it. I get, I was, I've been there. Yeah. I've been in that, that, that mindset. And because I'm, I am a writer director and I first and foremost, when I moved, I thought, oh, the route is kind of like you were thinking your own route. Right. I was like, oh, so if I write and maybe I get on a TV show and then maybe I can write a feature and then I'll jump to directing, which sounds good in theory. Yeah. And several people have done that, but everyone's route is different. Exactly. Like for anyone listening out there, you can ask a hundred people how they got to where they are and you're going to get a hundred different stories. Some of which you're like, that is an unbelievable story. You met someone where yeah. in Dubai at an airport yeah. and now you're making a film. Like yeah. there, there's all kinds of stories, right? Yeah. But I think what I've learned throughout all of those years, and partly because I work in doc in the TV area, you begin to understand as you're going through the footage when you're in post, just how true it is that if you're open and vulnerable, your story is going to become as specific as it feels to you because it's your story whatever it is you're you're ripping out of yourself <laughs> it becomes universal when someone reads it because that's when someone can connect yeah and i think the young writers i've seen who have say um whiplash right that came from a very personal space in his life that he was willing to dig in deep and pull out yeah or I can't remember who wrote Precious, but that's another story that came from deep within yes. a young person, right? And those are, it's it's cultivating a willingness, which of course humans aren't necessarily born with that willingness to dig deep inside of yourself. And, you know, the script I'm, I wrote, it's like my heart's mm. on every page. I think that comes across every time, honestly. You know? And Like I yeah. really do. Yeah, that's, a, that's, the, that's almost the most important thing. And, it, and that doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that every film needs to be the personal story of the writer. No, 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 no. You know what I mean? But it's interesting because you can tell when a movie like Mad Max Fury Road, okay, there's nothing personal in here in, in the literal sense, but the 
George Miller's and the other writers, everybody who worked on it, their heart is in every scene and on every page. You feel it, right? It's just something intangible that you feel. Yeah. And, uh, or like something like Black Panther, like Ryan, obviously it's a fantasy superhero, but there's a genuineness to the emotion that's coming from somewhere and you can feel it and you can feel the difference. And it's what separates those movies from insert generic studio film here mm-hmm. that is uh, content versus storytelling filmmaking. Yeah. And it's, we just want to work on those movies. It's, it's why is it so hard? We just, all anyone wants is to make those kinds of movies, but it's They're rare and it's hard to come by and it's hard to come by writers and directors and execs and producers and whoever that want to get it done. Well, yeah, I would contend. I don't know that it's that hard to find writer directors because we're all out here. Yeah. I think there's a, I hate to use the terms, you know, but there's, there's an awful lot of bubble gum out there. Yeah. And it all costs, you know, a hundred million dollars to make. And where are the, the five to $30 million films these days? Cause that's where that sweet spot is for the films we're talking about. Generally, those films are usually stories that are made for that kind that indie indie level 10 or the mini studio 10 to 30 million and yeah those have been squeezed out for a while yeah and that's uh it, you know in the 70s and the 80s when you grew up and were watching certain films the cohen brothers they can make films now because they garnered their name but i do wonder if they'd come up with Blood Simple or Raising Arizona today. If Blood Simple comes out now. What? Yeah, what happens? Yeah. Because I, yeah. I fell in love with them on Raising Arizona. Yeah. You know, that was an amazing blow my mind film. Um, yeah. But I do wonder, I mean, even I, I think I told you I had James Deacons on mm. my podcast, which was fucking amazing. But then they asked me to be on Team Geek. Yeah. And towards the end, you know, what, you know we got into this conversation about you know because he asked me what about what about netflix for my film and i'm like they squeeze they're the ones that are killing yeah the indie feature right they're the, now they're the worst offenders yeah i'm like because they, they are how many movies have you heard of right now that have been ready to shoot they had actors signed and all of a sudden the actors name actors call them up and go i just got offered 20 million dollars to this netflix yeah. netflix saying i'm out yeah well and on the flip side yeah how many movies in the 20 to 30 million million dollar range produced by Netflix, can you name, yeah. that have contributed to the filmmaking climate, mm-hmm. the power of the dog. But yeah. that's not really the same because Netflix have a thing with auteurs. Mm-hmm. So Jane Campion is an extremely established filmmaker. Martin Scorsese, Alfonso Cuaron, yeah. all the people they've produced films for, prestige films that that fit this budget range, they're all established filmmakers because Netflix, by definition, is a risk-averse business model driven by algorithm and content creation and content generation and content performance. And that's what drives their stuff. So they're like, Oh, Martin Scorsese prestige drama. We can sell that. We can uh, get awards off of that, et cetera. But taking a chance on the Coen brothers of the 2020s. No, absolutely not. And it makes you think because I feel like somebody did make blood simple recently Mm -hmm. and it was, um, it was blue ruin. Jeremy Saulnier's film. It's it's a great, taut thriller, super low budget, made completely independently, not even with a production company. Just raised money, mm-hmm. went out and made it. He shot it himself. He was the DP. They used prosumer gear. And it was so good. Just tight, thriller, clever, 
has this flavor, like very kind of Texas flavor to it. That's very particular Mm -hmm. and has this attitude and it's funny and dark. It's literally blood simple in the 2010s. And then it's what happened to that guy? He made another great film, Green Room, that was a little bit of a bigger budget. It was four mil. And that was produced by an indie studio. I think that was A24, pretty sure. And then I don't know what he's done since. Like, like where, how come Jeremy Saulnier can't go to A24 or whatever studio that he has an established relationship with and yeah, say, and go, I've got a new script. Here's my new script. Mm-hmm. You know, give me $20 million. Because that's what the Coen brothers have done for the last 30 years is they'll show up to yeah. whoever. They'll shop it around. I don't think they have the one studio that they work with, but they'll shop it around with a budget in mind because mm-hmm. they it just comes as a package deal it's ready to go here's the script now they take co-directing credit but at the time it was like ethan's the producer joel's the director we're gonna make this well for- i think they're separated now i think ethan's directing now they've yeah. separated yeah I know. ethan's directing a solo film yeah, ethan ethan i just saw the trailer for ethan's new film so isn't that crazy cool. like yeah. after all these years joel's like, i'm gonna do this solo project and ethan's like well i'm not interested in filmmaking anymore i'm gonna do i'm gonna do theater yeah and then now ethan's doing a solo film yeah. I'm like, what? What is going on? What has happened? Up is down, <laughs> left is right. Like, how can the Cohen brothers split up? This doesn't make it. It's unfathomable. Like, after 60 years, have they gotten sick of each other? It took 60 years. That's crazy. Anyway. I don't know if they've gotten sick of each other. I just wonder if they just wanted to see, can I do it? Yeah, you know, without my brother. Oh, right? fair enough. I mean, and and yeah. They, um, well, and look, to be fair, Tragedy of Macbeth was not a Cohen brothers film. Like, it's very much its own little thing. And so, I'm sure that Ethan's project is also its some. It's going to be its own thing. Something different, yeah. yeah. But anyway, I hope I'm excited for their reunion, their eventual reunion. Yeah. <laughs> Did you happen to see uh, Ethan wrote this really funny letter about? To, to some publication about Joel separating from him. I d- yeah. The, yeah, it was hilarious. <laughs> I did see that. And the, it was the great. etch a sketch or the, no, the light bright. It was he, that he'd broken his light bright when he was a kid. The light bright. He attributed yep. all of it to that. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh. I'm sure they're still on good terms. I have no doubt. No, I'm positive they are. I just, I, it's, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I'm sure that I would have, I think, I don't know. It just feels like they're a band that's, we're doing our solo project and then they're going to come back. Yeah. And, I feel like there's a couple more masterpieces left. They're not, they're not old yet. There's still more to come. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, there's some articles that have been coming out. Um, and there's a couple of funds that are starting to come out that have realized that there's a sweet spot in a film that costs, say, five to 10 million. Yeah. If it hits. Yeah. Because if it hits, everybody makes money off of that film. And so I'm hopeful that's the beginning of maybe some swing back that they're realizing that it's gone a little too far the other way. And you're not going to get any anything fresh or, you know, and I, I said to Roger, I'm like, look, because he was like, what do you think about it? And I'm like, I, I'm hopeful it doesn't die. You know, I'm hopeful that this is a pendulum. And you look at Parasite or you look at everything, everywhere, all at once. Those give me hope. Well, and they did really well, both of them. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. They didn't cost much and they did really well. Yeah. One of which was not even in English. Yeah. You know, I have hope for it. I think it's a pendulum. I mean, I think that we we did go through something similar in the 80s. I think there was a pendulum swing towards franchises and blockbusters. action films and blockbusters. And now, of course, now we look back on them with nostalgia. But at the time, like a lot of that stuff was considered pretty vapid. And I'm not talking about the Indiana Jones. I mean, Raiders of the Lost Ark was nominated for 10 Oscars or something. But you know, people look back now on Schwarzenegger movies from the 80s, like Commando or something with rose-tinted glasses of nostalgia. But at the time, like that movie's kind of bad and 
dumb. That movie was made for 12-year-olds, and I know because I went right. to it when right. I was that age with yeah. my friend Victor, who was like, we got to go see Commando. And I'm like, okay, you know, right. Predator thing, went to go exactly. see it. Now, you know? Predator, I love. But and now, and the, the thing that people don't realize is that that lens of nostalgia moves with us in time. Like, it's just a, it's just a human phenomenon. And so- it feels now that we are inundated with vapid superhero action blockbuster stuff in that in 30 years, I think people will look back on quite fondly mm-hmm. because this cycle just it just repeats itself. And people will look back on the original Avengers movies and Iron Man and all that stuff and be like, ah, yeah. I honestly that's already kind of happening. Like people compare Marvel movies now to the first round. And are like, oh, nothing can top the first Iron Man and Captain America. Like the original ones are the best. And there is something, there's something to it, but really I think it's nostalgia. It's just people are responding to that. And I do think the pendulum will swing. I do think it will swing. And back. we have a very stark or very real what you're saying, the nostalgia thing. Look what happened with Top Gun Maverick. <sighs> yeah. Now I went to Top Gun Maverick with two two of my friends who are two young filmmakers, one's 25, one's 25. And so it was funny because one of them called me up and was, I've never seen the original. I go, oh, just watch a recap. You know, because like at this point, he had no time to watch Top mm. Gun. But that movie has a great deal of nostalgia attached to it. Yes. And patriotism. Yes. Nostalgia, patri- patriotic nostalgia. Okay. A- 80s patriotic nostalgia. Yeah. And I remember yeah. it. I remember going to it. I remember being sucked in by it. I remember Ali- Kelly McGillis, which I am super upset wasn't in this film. Because I think there was sh- shit going on there with Mr. There was something shady. Yeah, there was something that went on. I don't remember. Yeah, I read about Bruckheimer it. Yeah, doesn't like older women in his film. Jerry. And I know Connolly is o- older, but she, you know she aged better in in Hollywood terms. Jerry. Um, and I and maybe I don't know. Maybe it had something to do with Tom too, because he looks. I mean, he's aged. I'm sorry, Tom. You have. He has. I'm, but not, he has, not as much as. But he does not look like someone who's about to turn 60 or it has turned. I think he's. No, he doesn't. No. And yeah. I and I get that. I'm just saying that relationship that was built in that film. I mean, they brought back who I love. I love the scene they, they had with Val Kilmer. But they brought back the guy who can't speak anymore. But they didn't bring back Kelly McGillis. Yeah, they could have brought back I'm Kelly like, for a cameo. Just get, throw her a friggin' bone here. I mean, but, come on. But I just, I remember leaving the theater after that going well yeah they tried to remake it i don't feel that i'm supposed to feel patriotic and i'm like but Mm. who was the enemy but like they tried to make an enemy but they also tried to not name one (laughs) in this new one and oh see okay so for me that worked that worked for me because Mm -hmm. to me the remake really isn't about that at all it's about it's a way more character driven thing Mm -hmm. which the original is not (laughs) at all not at all but Mm -hmm. mostly not but this one is really a character drama and uh, the enemy um, doesn't matter because it's not about that. It's not about the rah-rah patriotism of it. It's about Maverick accepting his place in the world and reconciling with his past and figuring out what his future is. Tale as old as time. That's what. That's why I love the new one because. Yeah, but yeah. but did he did did he reconcile his place in the world? He didn't. He was supposed to be a teacher, you know, and then he did. Well, but in the but by the. <laughs> Well, no, but by the end of the film, the teacher was the detour on the way to him Mm -hmm. realizing what's really important because he starts the film completely self-selfish and self-obsessed and clinging to his past, even though he's past his expiration date. The teaching is the detour on the way to him realizing that his real 
role. It's not about teaching. It's about being a mentor and being a father figure to Goose's son. And that's where he ends the film. And I don't know that. Listen, I saw the movie four times in theaters. Huge fan. Loved it. Masterpiece. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's okay. I'm just saying there's a lot of of nostalgia attached to that. Um, And I think, you know, I'm because I quite clearly remember the original one in the theater and everything else that went around it. And I'm, and I saw this, Oh, we're playing football instead of volleyball. Yeah. Oh, we're, no, you know, there's, like, there's intentional. Yeah. Like yeah. they had all of these winks and yeah. there was intentional things. And sometimes they felt, they felt put in there rather than, than necessary. Fair. I guess. And so I was like, you don't, this is already a manipulative story. You don't need all of that for me, for my, for me, old, old person who saw original <laughs> movie. And that's what it felt like. Just Yeah, that's know. fair. Now, listen, I will say this. So for me, Top Gun Maverick is actually a great example of, of a big studio tentpole movie where you feel the heart on the page. And it's not necessarily the writer specifically, but it, it's Tom and his history with the movie and the role and it's just everybody involved. Like you really feel that this movie is saying something personal. It's a movie about somebody who is still working his passion well beyond his expiration date and is still good at it, but the world is telling him to stop and that the younger gen- it's time for the younger generation to take over. And he defiantly says no. And it is, it can be a metaphor for anything. The film it's industry. The boomers and the millennials. Well, I think it's Tom. I think it's Tom Cruise. <laughs> it's Tom Cruise. Yeah. It, it's Tom Cruise, and he's still out there jumping off of airplanes and stuff. And it's the film industry, like that scene with with John Hamm, where he's like, mm-hmm. "We're going to replace you with drones. D- your kind is done." And Tom Cruise is not yet. And then he delivers like the most epic action blockbuster in years. And because that this film has its heart on its sleeve, it made two billion dollars, mm-hmm. and it's still yeah. making money in theaters now. It's October. Yeah, And that doesn't happen anymore because movies that are content, they do a big opening weekend and then they fizzle quick yeah. because people are just looking for the next piece of content. They're like, yum, pizza slice. Ugh, okay. I'm hungry again. What's next? Oh, hamburger. But then this is something people come back to. It's a nice steak, yeah, medium rare. And you come back to it. You come back to it and people keep, people are still going to the theaters to watch it. And I think there's something to learn there for Hollywood and for execs that what separates I don't know, the crimes of Dumbledore, whatever the latest Harry Potter Fantastic Beasts was, I don't even remember, that made a decent amount of money, but it wasn't like a huge smash. And also mm-hmm. it has zero like cultural impact. Nobody's talking about Fantastic yeah. Beasts. I think probably most people aren't even aware there was a Fantastic Beasts movie this year. I saw it and I think when it ended, I was like, I couldn't tell you a single thing that just happened in the movie I just finished. Why does that movie make 150 mil and Top Gun Maverick makes $2 billion? I think that's the difference. Like, that's what separates a movie is that heart and that dedication, not just in the script, but in the filmmaking. You can feel it in the filmmaking. They sent, they go, they went up in the jets and yeah. there's a tactile nature to the, all of it. It's all contributing to it. And uh, it does make me hopeful. That makes me hopeful. Everything, everywhere, everywhere makes me hopeful. Smile makes me hopeful. Barbarian, The Woman King, all this stuff makes me hopeful because these movies are doing decently. And they're doing enough to be profitable and they weren't hugely expensive to produce. Audiences are showing us that like they're out there. It's a smaller audience, but it's there. And people like 
this is the thing. People like going to the movies at the end of the day. Like people just like going to the movies. It's a fun activity. Mm-hmm. It's a fun communal activity. I don't think it's going Especially anywhere. Say, I, I'm not a huge a fan of horror films because I, I personally don't find fun being scared. Fair. <laughs> and that's since I was a kid. So yeah, but horror films and thrillers and comedies all, I think, are built for watching in a theater, in a communal yeah. Set. You know, I love laughing. So yes, I do find myself alone laughing out loud. But I think yeah. oftentimes, you know, you're like, <laughs> when you see something, but if you saw it in a theater, sure, it elevates that moment. And all of a sudden, it's contagious. And you get the point. It's the same with scares. Yeah, 100%. Um, but I think and- it's the same with emotion, too. Like, it's the same with mm-hmm. really successful emotional dramas. It's not for everyone. And there's certain audiences that it's not for them. And that's okay. But I, yeah, I mean, I, th- I just, I don't think every movie needs to be for everyone. I think that's fine. As long as you scale no, the budget, saying, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm yeah. just saying the communal nature of film and theater, because my degree, my actual degrees are in theater, not in oh, film. Yeah, right. I have a master of fine arts in technical theater. Oh. So te- being a technical director and lighting and scene design. Great skill set. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Of course. What I do is a, as I've told many of my actor friends, it's a museum piece without you. Oh, you can yeah. do your job on an empty theater, yeah. on an empty stage. And then they'll tell me, yeah, but it's more fun to do with what you do. Oh, for sure. <laughs> um, you know, no. And I'm like, yeah, it all elevates. We all elevate each other's exactly. performance. I love that. I love filmmaking. <laughs> what a fun thing. But And how, just to go back to a little question is, how important is it for you to jive with the director as a DP? Oh, I mean, it's pretty much everything, honestly. It's pretty much everything. Because for me, the role of the DP is really, well, it's twofold. There's a technical side of it, which is figuring out solutions to lighting and camera related questions that are raised by the script and needs and wants and so forth. And that's fun. That's part of it. That's fun. But I think the main part, the main job of the DP, honestly, for me, is being the director's kind of partner in crime, confidant, right-hand person, psychiatrist, you know, diplomat, translator, like everything. And without that relationship, you're you're kind of just pushing buttons and that's not very fun for me. I like the act of filmmaking and creation and I think that just comes from everything we've already talked about and my story and introduction to film and love of movies just in, as a viewer. But, and in, in addition to that, my lack of desire to be the head of the pack and the spearheader and the go-getter, well, that's the director's job. And that's something I'm not good at. And that's why I don't want to direct because I don't enjoy that part of it. But what I do enjoy is helping make a film and helping tell a story and having a director who shares that vision and has a vision and has strong ideas and knows what they want and is able to navigate those things and then have us having us work together to create that shared vision that's the that's really the only way to have a genuinely great experience making a film without that relationship it falls apart very quickly and it becomes either boring which is tolerable but not ideal or worse actively miserable which nobody ever wants like the worst thing in the world is getting to set and being like Oh my God. Okay. Five hours till lunch. All right. Now six more hours and I get to go home. And that's happened to me a few times. Thankfully, not anytime recently in years. It's been years and years since that's happened. But early on, there were some experiences like that. And yeah, you really learn how important this exact, the answer to this question is for building a satisfying and sustainable career. 
is if it, if you don't have this that relationship and that feeling, I might as well be I don't know shooting corporate videos that shoot for eight hours a day or less and <laughs> don't require any particular taste or skill and I can just show up and push the buttons like I said and go home and live a life or I would just go into teaching or something. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, it's not worth it. It's just not worth it. It's not worth the heartache and the stress and the hard work if there isn't that partnership at the core of it with the director. It's like everything. And the other department heads, honestly. On that, But the director one is the core one, yeah. Yeah. On that, so like how intentional are you about the projects you pick? Not just the director, but what the project is. Like how important is it for you to jive with that yeah. project or that it says something that you're – yeah. In tune with or uh, also ve- also very important. And that's not to say that every project has to, I don't know, have some message or ulterior motive or higher meaning, though that's always a good thing. That's something for me to connect to, but yeah, it is important in a general sense for me to for myself to work on projects that I, this sounds so basic, but it's like I just want to work on projects that I like, like that I just like the film. And I, and as a viewer that I will want to then watch it later and enjoy it. And then as a career cinematographer, I'll be able to look back on it in 30 years and say, oh yeah, I'm proud of that one. I'm proud of that one. I'm happy to have my name on that. Oh, that was a good film. Other people responded well to it. It found an audience. Yeah. All of those things are really important to me because yeah, it kind of goes back to that same thing. It's like, if you're not making something that you feel is contributing to with the world, the art form, the history of film, the film landscape, the cinema, oeuvre, whatever. Why would I work this hard on this? Why would I do 12-hour days? Why would I uh, not have a life during production and give up on all these things and stress myself out and gain weight because I have no self-control on set and I just raid the crafty table all the time and get out of shape and all of these. Why would I do that if not to for a a higher purpose. Yeah. What what attracts you to a project? Great question. My agents ask me that all the time. <laughs> and my answer is unsatisfying because it's non-specific. It's one of those it's one of those things where you sort of know it when you see it, but but there there are specific things. I'm definitely attracted to morally complex stories and morally ambiguous stories and com- and complexity in general and layers. I'm a little bit less interested in stuff that's a little more surfacey even if it's good it's it, there's that's it's tough for me to connect to stuff like that that doesn't have some layer of complexity or contradiction or expectation subversion or something and then i do visuals are very important to me like i pick projects that i think will be interesting visually or have the potential to be interesting visually so i'm not particularly attracted to ones that don't tick that box and um I think because it, it is important for me to work on things that I find challenging and engaging aesthetically and and that push me aesthetically and and uh, technique or whatever it is like that is important. You don't want you don't want to just show up to work and just plug and play. That's not that's not fun or interesting. And and then directors is the third one. Just directors who have maybe even if the project is a little bit less interesting, it's worth it to work on it with a director who has that personality and that approach and that mind and vision and wherewithal and intelligence and curiosity and all of those things. So I think between those, those three things, a project maybe has to tick two of the three for it to be worth Mm -hmm. it. 
that's what I, that's how, that's how I pick commercial projects too, is like commercial projects. I don't want to just take anything because I don't want to, I don't want it to just feel like a boring day job. So a commercial project has to either two of the, two of the three, it's the three R's. Mm-hmm. The three R's are rate, real, and relationship. And a project has to tick two. So it either has to be a good rate and a good relationship, a director that I want to work with, but maybe it's not a visually interesting project and it's not going to go on my reel, or maybe it's a, it is a visually interesting project with a good director, but the rate is low, but that's still worth taking. And it's not worth taking a project only for the rate. If it doesn't have at least one of the other two elements, it's not enough, mm-hmm. not enough for me. Yeah. Has to pass that bar. That's a very good thing you're doing yeah. for yourself. Yeah. So you know. I think so too. Well, I think you just have to, if I'm not intellectually stimulated by this career, and artistically stimulated by this career, then it's it's not fun. And I and it should be fun because filmmaking is fun. It's play, it's make believe, it's all of these things. And I would also yeah. say if you're not having fun, it's gonna show in the work. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Hundred percent. So hundred percent. It goes back to the heart thing. I think they're related. I think there's something connected. Yeah. What so you've recently worked with a, a fairly well known DP. It's Greg, right? Is that yeah, how you pronounce his name? Yeah, Greg. Greg Fraser. Some he's uh, some Australian that I met randomly. Some Australian that you know on on a film that none of us have seen yet, including myself, including uh, both of us. Called yeah. True Love, but <laughs> yeah, so it's it's an edit right now, correct? True Love. It is in the edit. Yeah. It is in the edit, and it, it does have a release date. You can look for it October 6, twenty three, in theaters. Get ready. So it's but, in a year. Yeah, it's in a year. A year from recording. That, yeah. How did that come about? Because it's an interesting. I don't think I've ever heard of a co-DP. So tell me how, I mean, I'm sure they've happened. I just haven't noticed. Yeah. But how did that yeah. happen? Because you're working for yep, somebody who's DP. Yeah, yes. Yes. <laughs> right? Or working with, sorry. No, I mean, it was interesting. Working with, exactly working with. Yeah. Sorry. We were both working for, this is how it came about. This is why it came about. We were both working for Gareth Edwards, the director. And Gareth is, he directed Rogue One, which is how we met Greg and Godzilla. And then his first film was Monsters. And Gareth is just a genius. Like He's one of these very rare directors, very rare, who he's like on the kind of Spielberg, Cameron, Fincher level of there's a very clear vision, a very specific taste and can do everybody's job, but doesn't. He's not, he does not adhere to, or he doesn't fall into the trap that maybe some of those directors at least their reputation that precedes them implies that they fall into. He's a very collaborative, like extremely collaborative, very sweet person who has uh, this vision, but also wants to bring a bunch of people in and to lift up that vision and contribute to it. And so our collaboration was related to that. The boring logistic reason is that it was like a scheduling thing with Greg's schedule, but the result, it was really just a mind meld of all three of us, Gareth has a very specific vision for how he wants the project to look. And uh, we'll get into this more when the film comes out. There's some amazing, the, the story behind how it was made is pretty, pretty incredible and very unique. The, but the, I guess the little tidbit that I can mention that will eventually be more explored in more depth is that Gareth operated the camera wow. for the shoot, which he also did on Rogue One, not on the whole shoot, but he does operate the camera. And of course, Monsters his first film, he was the DP and the camera operator and the editor and the VFX artist, right? So this is just the kind of guy he is. And so he has such a clear vision for 
how the film was going to look and how he wanted to make the film and the operating part of it and all of this, that both Greg and I's contribution was really support and support of that vision and just helping bring it to life. And so it was very collaborative because it was not, there wasn't this division of your, the DP does this and the director does this. And it was a way more entwined and mixed together. And, and it was beautiful. Honestly, it was a beautiful collaboration. It was an unbelievable experience. And I can't wait. I can't wait to see the movie as a fan of film. And I can't wait for other people to see the movie. And I can't wait for it to come out. And I can't wait to talk more about it and tell the story of how we made it and what went into it because it's really unique and special. Well, I can't wait and remember this tiny podcast <laughs> when it comes out. Oh, absolutely. Any, and I want to we'll go on any. I want to see it with you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Me too. Oh, I'm going to um, be there opening night. No, I want to I want to be there with you when you sit so you I can be like, "Oh my goodness, what would you do there?" Yeah. <laughs> um, no, that, yeah, exactly. We'll go yeah. see it. Yeah. So, my film, Alone Girl, which I think you heard a little bit about that night we met. Yes, but a little, yeah. It's it's a coming of middle age story wrapped in an unromantic comedy. I love it. Such a great I've pitch. Taken the, yeah. <laughs> yes. I've taken the rom-com and turned it on its head. Yes, and fantastic. Part of this podcast is documenting my journey and part of that journey is having these conversations and learning things from everyone that I talk to as well on this journey. So what advice might you give me as, because you've been on several films already and done your work as I plan to make my film, what kind of advice do you have? And yes, I'm going to be making story storyboards and shot lists and stuff. I'm just wondering what advice (laughs) you have. I have, I have one piece of advice that is big picture. And then I have one really small piece of very specific piece of advice. We'll start with the big picture one. You already just touched on this, but really, to me, it's impossible to undervalue prep and the prep, the Denis Villeneuve, I remember in some interview or Greg mentioned this about Dune, or I don't remember who it came from. This anecdote came from specifically, but Denis referred to the prep process on Dune as the dreaming uh, process. And that's, it's our time to dream about the movie. And I just think dreaming about the movie is really it's not everything because the edit is huge in shaping the the final form of story. So I don't want to underplay that. And then obviously production is its own thing. I almost think production is the least, especially on an indie film, is maybe the least interesting part of making the film. Because when you're on an indie and you're on a tight schedule, it, it has, by the nature of those limitations, it has to become a little bit assembly line, just a little bit. You always have to leave room for spontaneity and discovery and play and create and the act of creation. All of that is true. You have to leave room for it, but you're just constrained by schedule. And that creates a circumstance in which it's just, it overemphasizes the importance of the dreaming part of the film and not just thinking about it, but even using that time, which is rare on indies, but is really worth carving out to do test shoots and to try things out with your DP and with your costume designer and your set decorator and oh you froze i don't know if i'm still recording okay we're good we're good no you're good you're good and finding the time in prep to play and to explore and to experiment and to try things because it's there's no stakes during that process you're just it's a pure act of play and on on indie films that time tends to be minimal and chipped away at quite frequently. And you say, oh, we can prep it in three weeks. What do we have to do? We got to get crew. We got to get equipment. We got to scout the locations. 
It's not enough. It's not enough time. It's too much. It's too much focus on logistics, and it's not enough time to dream and to think about the movie and to explore what the movie is and to try things out visually. So to me, that's that's so important. It's so important to bring a camera to the location scouts with ideally with something as close to the lens that you're going to shoot the film on as possible. It doesn't have to be the same one, but just something in that world and shoot footage on the scouts and use the scouts as an opportunity to look for shots and look for compositions and the stuff that you don't have time to do on the shoot day is Mm -hmm. the more of that stuff that you can do, the more thought out and confident and lived in the vision of the film will be when you actually get to making it. And a lot of the prep stuff you end up throwing out, which is good. That's a good, healthy part of the process. Kathy but in or, I think in order to do that. Yes. Okay, so that's the bigger picture one. It's like prep, having a DP on early in prep, experimenting with the DP, bringing a camera to the scouts, doing test shoots, doing lighting tests in whatever way you can. Even if they're just at home, just anything is contributes to this. The small piece of advice I have is something that I picked up on 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 true love. And I, this has now stayed with me and I'm now obsessed with this. And this is not a new idea, but we did it on that film and it, it changed the way I looked at scheduling. So the approach is to start on your, when you're shooting a scene, start on your close-ups and then work your way out to the wide. Because what tends to happen when you do the quote unquote traditional method of shooting is you start with your wides and then you move into your close-ups. But what happens inevitably, especially on an indie film, is you end up spending way too much time on the wide and you spend way too much time tweaking and perfecting it and doing too many takes, not through anybody's fault, just because you're figuring out the scene and the actors are figuring out the scene and everyone's figuring out what's going on. That by the time you get to the close-ups, you're rushed and you don't have enough time to get to the meat of the scene. And then in the edit, most of your scene is in the close-ups or in the mediums or whatever it is. And your wides are used pretty sparingly to get into a scene, get out of a scene, or maybe emphasize an action in the middle. But you never, you, unless you make a deliberate design choice to have a scene play out entirely in a wide, which is great, you're not going to spend a lot of time in those wides. And starting in the close-ups allows you to not waste the exploratory stage of the scene and actually get that stuff on in usable takes. And then in the edit, those are maybe the moments where the spontaneous, surprising, unexpected thing happened. And now you have it here instead of just in a wide where you can't really use it. It's a great piece of advice. So yeah, <laughs> consider so that. Got, yeah. I don't know if you have a question for me. I usually turn the tables. I'm hoping if you do, it's something I can answer short. <laughs> I love a table turn. Mike, so. I guess my question that I'm always curious about is what does, as a director, what do you look for in a DP? What, when you're interviewing DPs for projects or when you're going to interview DPs for whatever, what interests you? What uh, tells you that this is the right person? I think it's, there's a couple of things. In conversation with them, I can tell they're collaborative, that it's a, it's an yes and, what if this, and then they, and I can tell that they're going to elevate whatever it is I have in my mind or I try to communicate because sometimes I may not know how, I may not. I may know exactly what I want, but I might not know how we're going to achieve it because that's why I've brought the DP on. And the thing I love the most is someone. This is going to be a horrible answer. <laughs> um, With the audio, it was like through the whole answer. No, but the thing I love most is being surprised by that person uh, or any artist, whether it's the 
costume designer, the but with a DP, it's that willingness to have that conversation with me. Mm. And for them, hopefully, my energy says, tell me it all, even if it sounds dumb, because whatever you think sounds dumb might be the thing I'm waiting to hear. Yeah. There's a vulnerability to both of us that we're willing to collaborate with. That's what I look for the most. And then when I see they're real, it's also... I can tell they're being brave in the way they're shooting, which I watched a few of your shorts. You're very, you're very intentional, which I loved seeing your, and their shots. You're like, Oh, that was interesting. I wonder if that was good. Like, oh, I'm go- um, that, that is important to me actually is to be brave in Greg has this great thing that he says that I have stolen, which is if I'm not, if there isn't an element of a project that scares me, I'm, I don't have an interest in doing it. There has to be something mm-hmm. about it that makes me shudder in fear and anticipation and worry of, I don't know how to, how I'm going to do that or accomplish it. And it could be technical and it could be emotional and it could be something related to how the film is being made or where it's being made or anything. It could be anything, any aspect of the film, but something about it that instills a little bit of fear. And then fear is the motivator to being brave and to being bold and not being- That's great. Yeah. And yeah. not falling back on on comfort and reliability, because comfort and reliability is how you get dull looking movies that aren't particularly visually you interesting. You get the white or, bread of movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So you the get way the to white keep bread it, instead of the yeah. yeah instead of the rye, <laughs> the rye or the everything bagel, <laughs> everything bagel, oh, and everything bagel right now. You mentioned something you've got coming up, but is is there anything you want to tell us about that we should be keeping an eye out for? Yeah, a true love, October twenty twenty three. Like I mentioned, I've got a couple other features that I shot before True Love that will hopefully be released sometime in the next year. They both had festival premieres this year and have not been picked up for distribution yet, but we are hopeful. One in particular that premiered at at TIFF earlier last month or earlier in September called Fixation that I'm really proud of and is a really cool and devilish little movie that, and I love the director and she had such a bold vision for it. It was everything that we had talked about in terms of that collaboration. And and it's a cool and weird movie and definitely bold. And I can't wait for people to see it. Hopefully they'll get a chance to. So keep an eye out for that fixation. I'm sure that'll come out before True Love. So that'll probably be the next one to look out for. And then other than that, that's, yeah, that's pretty much it. I shot a short that's going to premiere online in November that I really love called Catalina that premiered it. It's a beautiful little queer short. And we premiered at some festivals earlier this year. And we shot it on location in Catalina Island with a skeleton crew, no lights, one lens, super minimal exercise in minimalism and purity of approach. So that'll be, that'll premiere online. It's on short of the week in November at some point. That's another one to keep an eye out for because I'm really proud of that one. Awesome. That's, That's amazing. It. I did <laughs> the, I did watch the trailer for Catalina. It looks really beautiful. Oh, cool. So, awesome. Yeah. I do my research, Warren. Listen, I'm very <laughs> impressed because most people don't. And that's okay. But I love the extra mile. <laughs> That's all right. Thank you so much, Oren. This has been wonderful. It's been great just to get to know you a little bit more. And I think I don't know, I just love the when two sin files get together, our conversations. I mean, at some point, I don't know what podcasts are out there that do this, but I could probably just sit and talk for hours about any movie for on on whoever's podcast is out there. Like, they want to. There's a movie chat podcast. I'm in. Whatever it is, maybe we should launch one. I don't know. 
We could. I'm game. I know how to do it. Yeah. The only problem is the edit. So it takes a long time to edit these. It's okay. So all my Saturdays are taken up. But but no, I really enjoy it. This motivates me further with my film. That's why I love having... I'm going to be inspired the rest of the day because we had this chat. Oh, that's that's, so wonderful. Yeah. I'm so happy to hear that. So, Oren, I feel this is the beautiful beginning to a friendship. And thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Absolutely. It was a real pleasure. It was such such a great chat. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in to Blissful Spinster. If any of these conversations are resonating with you, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find Blissful Spinster on Instagram and through our website, blissfulspinster.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me on this journey. And until next week, go find your happy.